Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Rick Doblin, who many of you may know as the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science. Some have called him the king of the psychonauts. Uh, he has had a long-standing interest in psychedelics and has been at the forefront of not only their therapeutic use, but also uh, in legalizing their use. He attributes his interest in psychedelics to his disappointment with his bar mitzvah, amazingly enough. And we'll hear more about that today. Also, he uh, did the first follow-up on the Good Friday experiment 25 years after that work was done by Timothy Leary. And we'll hear all about that. So this should be a fascinating discussion, and I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. Well, Rick, for the second time, uh, welcome. Uh, uh, we had a little conversation before we actually started this recording. But uh, one of the things uh, we began with was me telling you how I'm always fascinated uh, the process of uh, how one gets involved with their life work. And we sort of talked briefly about how you were involved in a construction company in your 20s, but then there's a significant gap and we were talking about the missing years, so maybe you can yeah. enlighten us. Uh, yeah, I'd love to, Jim. That's a great question. And um, it begins when I was 12, when my parents had a house designed by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright's. So I grew up in this beautiful, elegant structure, you know, through my high school years. And I just was so impressed on how the physical surrounding can affect your, your attitudes and your feelings. And um, I always had um, a skylight that was above my bed so I could see to the, the moon and the stars at night from my bed. And you know, Frank Lloyd Wright is known for sort of blending interior and exterior. Right? So I saw that. Now, when I was 18, um, is when I really was my first year of college. I did a lot of LSD. Um, I had a lot of problems, uh, intimations of spirituality, but a lot of challenges emotionally. And I went to the you know guidance counselor at, at New College in Florida and was given a book, uh, Realms of the Human Unconscious, Observations from LSD Research by Stan Groff. And the guidance counselor got that directly from Stan. And so that's what changed my life. I was able to speak to Stan, do a workshop with him when I was 18, right after he was married to Joan Halifax. And oh, so, <laughs> our, well, I, I, don't, I was going to say our mutual friend, Joan Halifax, or yeah, Roshi yeah. Joan. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, well, the funny part is that I was just an 18-year-old kid, and they were just married, and there would be the seminars. It was a week-long seminar, but during the rest of the time, we wouldn't see them. And so the, the scuttlebutt was, oh, they're in their room doing Tantra. <laughs> I, I assume you're talking about Tantra sex is what you're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was my uh, imagination. All right, so um, what I did was after the work with Stan, I did um, a month-long workshop in the Encounter Group in the mountains of California. 
I did uh, primal therapy. Uh, I was isolated for three weeks, did the primal scream. I did LSD as the supplement sort of to the end of the primal therapy. Process. So I did all of these things as much as I could do, and I wasn't where I really thought I would be. I, I really had undervalued integration and just thought the more you do drugs, the more you have these experiences, the faster you evolve. And so that's kind of a false and naive understanding. So I was utterly disappointed. I felt, this was now 1972, after the backlash against the 60s, the research was wiped out, and I felt like I was um, going to devote myself to bringing back psychedelic research, but I didn't feel emotionally uh, mature enough or spiritually enough to do that. But I didn't know what to do because I'd done the most uh, profound and powerful experiences that I could think of. So I went back home. I'm the oldest of four kids. I went back home for a couple months. Bad example. You know, the first one to leave the, le the nest drops out of college to study LSD. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure your conservative Jewish parents were very proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that took about another 10 years for them to be proud of me <laughs> after that. Um, but what I, I so I spent home for a couple months and I was just, what do I do next? I've done everything. I need to work on myself. The, the backlash, I thought, was partially due to... Um, emotional flaws of some of the advocates and things. So um, I couldn't figure it out. And then finally I got this idea, I needed to get grounded. I needed to really get involved in the physical world. You know, I had gone, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a teacher, everything was about academics. And I, I didn't really have much skill in the physical world. I was an athlete in high school, but, um, and so I thought I would first off build a handball court and give that to the college and I would go back to the school. So I went to my dad and mom and said, I want to study LSD, I want to drop out of college. I want you guys to pay for it. And then I said, I want you to donate materials to build this handball court. I was a handball player in high school and they thought, okay, it'll get me to um, at least back to school around my friends, even though I wasn't a student. So I built that. I had a, a girlfriend whose father was a contractor and he taught classes in how to pass the contractor's exam. And he didn't really like me. I was, you know, the, he was a, <laughs> uh, I was a Northern Jewish liberal and he, his daughter went to Catholic high school and here I was, you know, having sex with her and, you know, doing drugs and all this. Um, yeah, the, and so the, we, the, the perfect boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, so, so she and I came up with a good plan, which was that we would ask him if I could take his contractor's exam uh, course and um, for free. And we knew that it would piss him off to give it to me for free, but we thought he would do it because he would figure I would fail. And then I said, I would try really hard to succeed and show I you know, deserved his daughter. And so I did take his class. I had no experience and I became um, the youngest and dumbest contractor in all of Florida. Um, <laughs> I got just one more point over what you needed to get in order to pass the exam. I found the only county that you could take the exam in, um, without experience and then get reciprocity. And then um, because my grandfather was pretty successful in business, I was going to um, inherit some money when I was 21. And it was enough to build a house. Um, and, and, and I realized that um, I needed to get further grounded. I loved this experience. It took me a year to build a handball court. So then I, I built this house and Unfortunately, uh, not surprisingly, it 
went over budget. It cost more you know, than I thought. It took longer than I thought. I overbuilt for the neighborhood. I lost all the money. But it was a beautiful house. And, and people came and said they wanted me to build houses for them. And I thought, okay, this is a, um, you know, I, I failed at what I tried to do. I'll just keep at it. And so I had this decade of building houses. Um, and then near the end of um, the 70s, early 80s, I really got into speculation houses. So I would design homes, build them, and I, had, and I would move them. This was in Florida too. So people were buying up a lot of the old homes on the water and destroying them, old beautiful wood cypress homes. So I would buy them and move them put wheels under these houses. So I had a whole bunch of houses right at the time of uh, interest rates going up to 18% and you know the inflation. So I lost more money at that time. The rest of the, whatever I made, I lost it there. Um, and then I had this really difficult decision because I knew that I was always ready to go back to school. I wanted to go back to school. And I had built a house for a professor at uh, school. And um, I finally realized that I could, I wanted to stick with this construction until I was quote a success. But I realized that I also felt ready to go back to school. And I thought, okay, I, I don't really need to prove myself as a success. I'd rather switch and start. And so in 1982, in September, um, I started a new college and you can do off-campus study. So I, the first semester was Stan Groff. Again, after not seeing him for a decade, and I went to a workshop at Esalen, and the goal was to develop a multi-year curriculum to become a psychedelic therapist and to work on that with Stan. And, um, and so that, that's what I did. So the, the other part, though, I'll share about this lost decade was that I did feel that, um, you know, I was a big marijuana smoker. And, um, uh, you know, I reached this point when I was about 24 where I realized I couldn't accomplish everything I wanted to do if I was just a wake and baker and got high every day. So uh, I had to, um, you know, and, and, and I was able to stop easily. Um, but I also felt that, um, you know, marijuana was illegal at the time, and I thought I should do my part to um, help people have access to it. So I, I did have various run-ins with the law during this lost decade while I was trying to put myself together. And that's what really, I managed to uh, not get convicted of anything. <laughs> um, that's a and, true success. Yeah, yes, uh, um, arrested but not convicted. <laughs> um, and, but it, it really brought home the reality of the drug, drug war. So from the very time that I went back to school and to become a psychedelic therapist and, and worked with Stan, I realized that there was two things that, that I wanted to do. One was medicalize psychedelics, but the other was drug policy reform. And so now we're 41 years after that. And still as a nonprofit, MAPS has um, you know, completed two phase three studies in MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. We're the only psychedelic company of which there's hundreds now, for-profit companies. We're the only one that has even finished one phase three study. But we've also done a lot of work on drug policy reform. So I'd say that this lost decade um, really did um, help develop our strategy. And there was one other part I'll just share, which was there was a period of time where I thought I might be going to jail for, for a while. And I thought, okay, you know, I can, uh, I don't know that I want to do that. And I could run away and I could um, live under an assumed name and I could, you know, meet my family every now and then. 
you know, that, that wouldn't have made them comfortable. But what I realized was that the only thing I couldn't change was my interest in psychedelics. That if I were to give that up, I wouldn't know who I was. And then I finally realized I should um, be willing to go to jail. I should fight the, the case and, and eventually got free. But, but that was this crucible of who am I? What am I doing? And it just solidified. And, and also what had happened a few years before that was a dream the, the most important dream of my whole life, which was of a Holocaust survivor on his deathbed, telling me this story that he had um, survived miraculously. And he knew he would survive for a purpose, but he didn't know what the purpose was. And now on his deathbed, and he's looking at me, he's saying, now I understand what my purpose is. It's to tell you to study psychedelics. Wow. Because if we can really help people feel how we're all interconnected, we're all the same, we're underneath all these different ways that we're different, we're all the same, that that would be an antidote to genocide, to racism, to othering. Um, and so in my mind, in this dream, um, I said to myself, I've already decided to do this, so you can lay this burden on me and I will accept it and you can die in peace. And so then he died in front of my eyes. So I think this lost decade was getting grounded through construction, having a lot of um, run-ins with the law and understanding the um, inhumane nature of the drug war, but then also deepening and solidifying my commitment to working to bring back psychedelics. Well, you know, on that note, uh, uh, it's interesting because I guess your thesis uh, ultimately uh, was related to the Good Friday experiment, and uh, yeah. which is a different psychedelic, but maybe you can tell us a little bit of the background story in that because this is the intersection now of psychedelics and spirituality, I think. Yes. All right. So um, I had, um, from a very early age, when I was 17 and you know, and having to think about what I would do about um, the Vietnam War, you know, I decided to be a draft resistor. I thought I would do nonviolent resistance and I would not register for the draft and I would be arrested and I, I would go to jail and that would be my way to serve the country. Um, and during that time, I did a lot of reading about nonviolence and nonviolent resistance. And at that time, I came across um, the Good Friday Experiment because I was also reading about um, early psychedelic research. And the Good Friday Experiment was um, one of the best things that Timothy Lear did. Walter Pankey was the um, doctor and a minister and getting a PhD and decided to do a study at Boston University um, chapel, the Marsh Chapel, that would give 20 divinity students from Andover Newton Theological Seminary, um, half would get psilocybin, half would get a placebo in church on Good Friday. And the minister was Howard Thurman, who is this incredible dynamic African-American minister, but he was Martin Luther King's mentor when Martin Luther King wow. got a PhD at Boston University. But before that, he had studied with Gandhi. Howard Thurman had studied with Gandhi. And he understood the role of nonviolence and also the spiritual um, experience of unity and the political implications of that. So I think that's why he was comfortable letting uh, Timothy Leary do this experiment in his chapel in 1962. And I also learned that Walter Pankey, who had done this study, died in a scuba diving accident in 1971. 
And one of the most important aspects of research into the mystical experience in terms of how do you evaluate the validity of a mystical experience, the, the most important test is called the fruits test. Meaning it's not what you'd say or describe what happened, it's what are the implications in your life? What are the fruits of that experience? So when I started New College in 82, um, everybody has to do a senior thesis. And I wanted to do something on psychedelics, but this was a period of time when psychedelic research was completely blocked all over the world. Not only had the US in the backlash from Nixon against the hippies, the Controlled Substance Act of 1970, the research wiped out in the US and overall the world, there was no way for me to do any kind of study administering psychedelics. But when I started thinking about it, I realized that the Good Friday experiment as the classic experiment about psychedelics and spirituality, that if Walter Pankey had been alive, he would have done a long-term follow-up because that would have been the fruits test. What really does this uh, mean in people's lives after they reflect back? And I felt like here is a perfect opportunity for me to do a psychedelic research project as my undergraduate thesis because I don't need to actually get FDA or DEA permission. I'm not actually giving a drug. I'm just asking people questions about what had happened to them before. Now, the problem was that uh, Timothy Leary, uh, Walter Pankey was dead. There was no list of who was in the study. <laughs> so how, how do you do this? So I thought, okay, um, I'm going to come up to Boston. I was down in Sarasota, Florida, where New College is. And I went to Andover Newton Theological Seminary. And I met with their alumni office. And I said, I would like to put a little note in the alumni newsletter asking if anybody was in the survey. Now, this is now 1986. And I was um, shocked in that they said, absolutely not. The, the alumni, they would not let me put anything in the alumni newsletter because this had to do with psychedelics. And again, this was Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan, escalation of the drug war. So. I was so disappointed. So I thought, okay, at least I'll go to their library and I'll see if they've got any books speaking about it or about the Good Friday experiment. Nothing. The most important study ever in a scientific study of psychedelics for spiritual experience with their students, and they didn't have a single reference to it in the library. Nothing. And so I was just like, this is going nowhere. So I just wandered around the library and I happened to see a corner where there was a bunch of books that were uh, lists of the alumni. And one of them had everybody that was in school in 1962 when the experiment uh, took place and their addresses. <laughs> and I was like, this is it. This is what I need. So I photocopied that and I sent out postcards to like 360 people and I got reports back from three of them and that they were in the study. And then over years, I would um, go visit them in person. This was again where my parents were willing to pay for me to fly to interview them in person. And eventually I found and identified 19 out of the 20. Wow, and that's extraordinary. Yeah, and the things that I discovered, um, I thought in some ways were the key to the 60s. So what I discovered first off is that these are all now people that were in divinity school. Some of them had, had mystical experiences before divinity school, some of them after, some of them never, but they were more um, social justice kind of spirituality. But of those people that were in the psilocybin group, they all except for one um, said that the experience that they had 
that they considered a mystical experience at the time, they still considered it to be a genuine mystical experience. And that some of them had had non-drug mystical experiences um, before or after that experience to which to compare them to. They also said that that experience of unity did have political implications. They became more active in the anti-war movement, in the um, uh, civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, that, that they, they really did see this linkage. So that for me was like the theory of change, that if you can help people have this experience of unity, it breeds compassion for yourself and others. Um, but then what I discovered, the one person that uh, didn't really want to talk to me um, actually, when I called him up, he was in the psilocybin group, and he said if I ever called him again, um, he would sue me. And I was like, what is going on here? Other people in the study told me that he was the one that had a very difficult experience um, in the sense that Reverend Howard Thurman is, was an incredible orator. And we actually have a recording up on the MAPS website. If you just go oh, to the wow. MAPS website and you press Good Friday, experiment, you'll get to a page, and we have the original recording of the actual sermon, multi-hour sermon, and during Good Friday. But one of the things that he was saying is you have to tell people there's a man on the cross. This was super compelling. You, you need to tell people there was a man on the cross. And so this one person who was in the study under the influence of psilocybin said, yeah, I got to do that. And who should I tell? Uh, well, I should tell the president. And then he thought, well, the president is in Washington. I'll tell the president of the university. And he decided that he would get up out of this basement chapel and he would, um, he pretended to go to the bathroom and he ran out the door and he was going to go tell the president of the university. Now, uh, Houston Smith and Walter Pankey ah. got scared at this story, at, at seeing this guy running, tripping down, you know, and so they ran after him and they captured him and they tried to bring him back in and he didn't want to come back inside. And what they did was they injected him with Thorazine <laughs> and brought him back inside. But they never mentioned that at all. So that was a way in which the, the risks or the challenges were underestimated. And also the way in which Timothy Leary and others spoke about the study it became that everybody who had the psilocybin had this mystical experience similar to the saints of the ages. Eight out of the 10 did, but not all of them. And so the benefits were exaggerated, the risks were slightly or, or significantly covered up. And so my conclusion was that it was genuine mystical experience. It did have these political implications but that it's not so clear that, you know, it doesn't happen to everybody and we need to be more honest about the difficulties that people can have. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Music